This is Line Dance Podcast. I'm Christopher Gonzalez. Okie dokie. Next up is the three elements of charisma. Power. According to Olivia Fox Caban, author of The Charisma Myth, there are three components of char- to charisma, presence, power, and warmth. Last week, we talked about the nature of real presence and how to develop this vital quality. Today, we'll tackle that second element, power. Charismatic individuals are powerful people. However, this doesn't necessarily mean they're the leader of the free world or the chairman of a multinational corporation. In fact, you can find individuals who convey power in the humblest walks of life. Power, according to Caban, simply means being perceived as able to affect the world around us, whether through influence on or authority over others, large amounts of money, expertise, intelligence, sheer physical strength, or high social status. Being able to affect the world around us. Powerful people can get things done, or at least they give that impression. Charismatic individuals draw people into their orbit like a magnet, and power is the crux of that magnetic force. (laughs) It's a primal attraction. Back in our caveman times, our survival could depend on being chummy with the big dogs at the top of the social hierarchy, those who could offer protection, food, and women. To better enable us to seek out and latch on to such people, our brains evolved to cue in on body language and status markers that indicate power. (laughs) We may have left the savannah thousands of years ago, but people are still incredibly drawn to those who have resources, or or who simply know how to get them. Our very survival may no longer depend on our connections with such people, but our access to greater personal and professional opportunities can. It's extremely important to point out here that each of the three components of charisma must be deftly combined in order to produce personal magnetism. You may be the most affable, attentive person in the room, but without power, people will at best just see a nice guy. And at worst, someone who's needy and desperate. It may seem harsh, but generally the value people place on your presence and warmth depends on the amount of power they perceive you to have. Here's a quick example. If you received a compliment on a job presentation from both a co-worker and the CEO of the company, which compliment would mean more to you? If you're like most people, it'd be the CEO, because he's got the power. On the flip side, power, in the absence of warmth and presence, is a charisma killer. A powerful man who lacks these tempering qualities can be seen as important and impressive, but will come off as aloof, arrogant, and cold. The currents of presence, Power and warmth must be harmoniously intertwined to produce truly electric charisma. How to increase your charismatic power. (laughs) Body language plays a big role in conveying power, such as striking this power pose. It's a picture above there. Without warmth and presence, a powerful man can seem cold and move to others. Inside. Increasing your charismatic power may seem difficult. It may feel like applying for a job where you need experience to be hired, but to get that experience, you need to have that job first. Remember, however, that charisma is about how other people perceive you. So you don't actually have to have a million dollars or the Pope on speed dial. Nor do you need to be able to, quote, Crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of their women. Though those things certainly can help. In order to achieve Conan-esque power, you must first 
offer the impression that you've already got it. Fake <laughs> it until you make it. Oh, that's the one we're familiar with. As people perceive your charismatic power and invite you into their circles and influence you'll gain in real world power, which will make you feel and demonstrate more charismatic power, setting off a virtuous cycle that leads to greater and greater success. Offering an impression of power mainly comes down to enhancing the things humans are wired to home in on when trying to determine someone's level of it body language, and appearance. Here's how to do that, along with a few other proven power boosters. Boost your confidence! Power first begins in the mind. If you feel confident and powerful, others will feel it too. Self-assurance gives you an irresistible aura that draws people in and makes them want to get to know you better. Developing confidence deserves its own post, but for now, know that the crux of confidence is mastery. Expertise, regardless of the skill or area of knowledge, marks you as someone with resources, and a man with enough perseverance to plunge to the very depths of a subject. Attaining mastery over something will also fundamentally change the way you feel about and carry yourself. Putting the rest of these tips into practice will also help boost your confidence. So that was very entertaining to listen to. Power. <laughs> um, referring because there was a moment or two there where <laughs> I was thinking, "Who got the power? I got the. I got the. Yep. I got the power." Yeah. <laughs> um, shout out to Maddie. Mm-hmm. But th- certainly, a few things uh, stuck out with me. Fake it till you make it. Um, kind of falls along the same lines of like dressing for the job you want. That whole, if you walk in there as though you are the person they're going to hire, you are the person that's going to teach this lesson, you are going to take this complicated dance, even though, you you know, originally it would be way out of your comfort zone or your league of difficulty level, but you're going to try it anyways, because why not? Um, and you go in there with that positive idea um, that you're going to accomplish it, it gives you that uh, confidence to other people. Like It shows that you're a confident person, so people are going to respond as such. Uh, one of the few things I've noticed, uh, which is very odd, is when, like for instance, we wear our name tags to um, the Stonies. And, you know, like every once in a while, I'll have well, I don't have to, but because of who I am and what I like to do and I like to take care of things, uh, I will inform people who have drinks on the dance floor that unfortunately there's no drinks on the dance floor. When I walk up to them, a lot of times they respond very well to the same thing, the same statement that I've said numerous times when I have a name tag on. The one or two times that I haven't worn my name tag and said that, they've responded very negatively, like, who is this person? What the heck is she doing telling me what to do? Versus when I have the name tag, they're like, oh, okay. They have almost that, like, that sense of authority, almost, because I'm just wearing a name tag. Um, But because I walk up to them in, one, a non-confrontational manner, but two, with the confidence of, oh, you're not allowed to have uh, drinks on the dance floor, I don't want you guys getting in trouble, 
you know, they t- generally respond with a, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. It's like, no, it's fine, just letting you know, mm. kind of thing. Whereas if I walked up and went, um, guys, guys, I, I, I just, um, I, I really, um, really wanted to let you know that, you know, and that really hesitant, um, quiet and just unconfident personality, they're not going to respond to me. I'll be lucky if I get them to turn around and actually look at me kind of situation. Uh, Whereas, you know, same thing with teaching. You go up on that stage, like, you know exactly what you're doing and you have the fun attitude and it's going to totally happen exactly the way it's supposed to and everybody's going to understand it. People are going to respond to that a whole lot better with the well, since I learned this dance like two minutes ago and I'm going to attempt to teach you guys, let's see what we can do. You know, people tend to respond better to the, all right, let's see, let's, let's bring this on. Let's, let's tackle this one. Let, let's get this going or, you know, something to that extent. They certainly respond better to that confident personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two quotes that come to mind. One was uh, my, I think it was my senior yearbook quote. If you don't waltz in like you own the place, you never will. I don't know how much I agree with that now because it is possible to be just a humble student and eventually, you know, if if the opportunity comes your way, then maybe you will own it. You don't have to be like a big swaggering know-it-all or whatever. But uh, at the time, I thought that that was, you know, senior yearbook quote deep. If you don't waltz (laughs) in like you own the place, you never will. And the other one was... uh, don't just practice until you get it right. Practice until you can't get it wrong. And actually being prepared when you get up to teach something will allow everything to flow more easily and you can get distracted by things or go off on tangents and come back to where you were seamlessly and people will catch that. They'll be like, wow, they just jumped out and in like it was nothing. They must really know this. As opposed to having to like retrace your steps and be like, Okay, um, behind and cross. Okay, so our weight, our weight is on the left, and then we're gonna go forward from there. All right, is everybody's weight on the left? Like, you can try to get back into confident mode, but they can see that you weren't very prepared, and that may damage their uh, acceptance of your legitimacy as an instructor. And they might think this this is partly a waste of my time. I could do this. Uh, on a YouTube video and it'll take just as much time to learn it from that and maybe I would actually learn it more accurately that way. So actually being prepared, not just faking the preparedness, will make you feel like you can do things and nothing can go wrong. You will fear that something will go wrong if you are thrust into teaching something that somebody requests and you accept. It's okay to say no, by the way. Um, (laughs) If people say, I want to learn this tonight, you're like, oh, well, I don't really have that prepared, but we can try it next week. They'll, from what I've seen, just accept it. And having to do it on the spot, if you mess up and they call you out on it, you may feel defensive and see, well, you know what? I didn't even know I was going to be teaching this one. So, you know, cut me a little slack here or something like that. You'll get mad. Everyone's going to have a bad time. And how you respond to the little things that come up is how they will feel and what they will remember. If you, and I think that this is anecdotal and, you know, if you can find another source that uh, disproves this, feel free. Um, but I've read some various places that 
uh, laughter in humans is our way of announcing that a threat is not as serious as it seemed to be. So if something unexpected occurs in your initial, in, in the wild, and your initial uh, reaction is being startled or alarmed, and then you see it's just like a bird or something, and you thought it was a tiger, and you laugh, then it lets everybody else who you startled by being startled, it lets them know, oh, he's laughing. It's okay. There's no tiger. I'll go back to picking my berries. When you are startled or alarmed by something in the middle of a lesson and you don't laugh, you don't get back to baseline of, oh, oh that was a silly thing, um, but now let's move forward. But instead you're like, oh, I knew I was going to mess that part up. I, if if you guys mess this up, like, believe me, this is a hard part. So, yeah, I can't believe the choreographer thought of that. Like, I blame them for messing me up right now. Like, they're going to treat it like, oh, God, I didn't know it was so serious. I, I was startled and alarmed, but I thought that it, maybe it wasn't a big deal. But here the choreographer or the instructor is telling me, like, this is a big deal. So now I got to like really focus on it the next time we do it because otherwise I'm going to mess up and like that'll throw off the rest of the dance because that's what the instructor seems like. How you are is how they will be. Uh, there, I think there was something I read about comedians uh, and, and whatever state you adopt being what they will do. Uh, if they are, if you're losing the audience and you realize that and you don't know how to roll with it, then that'll make them stressed out uh, even worse and it'll be harder and harder to get them back. So it's good to prepare for things that can distract you, for things that can frustrate you, whether it's the sound system or the students themselves or uh, the host. Uh, any number of things can occur and you, um, you'll just have to adapt because you're doing it live. All right. What else do you have to say about confidence? Do you know any especially confident um, instructors whose ex uh, example we can all follow? Well, one of the things I was going to say um, slightly off of what you just asked me um, was kind of more along the lines of the idea that you were saying when something happened and you get startled and then you laugh. Mm -hmm. That's that whole, like, when you make a mistake as an instructor... And if you laugh it off, people say, oh, it's okay, it's fun, you know, it happens, whatever. People don't pay a whole lot of attention to it and they keep going. That comes ac across as confident. Mm -hmm. Even though there was a mistake, you confidently went, oh, whoops, my bad, that was actually my left foot, not my right. Mm -hmm. But, okay, so anyways, you know, and people laugh, they have a good time. It makes it memorable. Um... I know that I've taken lessons from people who have messed up and forgotten the dance and because they were laughing it off, even though I'm sure it was really, really stressful for them, you know, it made it a fun memory. Mm. And then when we got the dance, it was enjoyable. I've also had the opposite happen where people have messed up, made it a big deal. And now it's kind of like, oh, well, yeah, that's a dance that I think I know mm -hmm. I guess I mean there was that mess up I maybe I don't know it you know and you start questioning it because uh they had a reaction mm -hmm. which kind of goes off of the whole idea too of um 
infants and like toddlers. I know that I learned firsthand when my kid brother was born because of the age difference between us. Uh, when he fell, I just kind of went, get up, you're fine. And he'd get up and, and go versus uh, my nephew at the time, which is like the same age, you know, they'd have that <gasps> reaction. So then the kid would cry. Mm-hmm. So it's a totally different of like how you react is how they're going to react. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to feed off of you. So as an instructor, when you act confident, you act fun, they're going to feel that and absorb that as the class, act confident and act fun. Um it's going to be a better all environment when you laugh something off and you you have that confidence. And it really is kind of true with the whole fake it till you make it thing. I know the first time I stepped on stage <laughs> was actually after I'd given myself a panic attack, you know, because I was so nervous about teaching that I couldn't that night. I had to wait till the next time it came around to me and then I got up there and it was scary and it's still scary now. Um, I still get nervous, but I have worked through it enough times by pretending that I belong up there that now it's just, I get around those little things that can stop me and get me worked up and nervous. Like I don't even really give them the thought process anymore. I just kind of get up there, do what I do, get off. And then once I'm off the stage, I go, oh, that was scary, you know, kind of thing. That's when I have my moment. Um, but I don't think about it before then any anymore, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Yep. A, a quote that comes to mind is measure twice, cut once. And here we're sort of continuing the theme of overdoing things being a good amount of doing things, um, like overwelcoming and overlistening. You can overprepare and it's all right. Like if you have an event coming up and you're going to teach a dance, you may get flustered if it's something you choreographed and put the last step on like an hour before the class. Maybe that's exciting for you and maybe you get like a thrill from the adrenaline of not knowing whether it's all going to work out, but it may also harm you professionally and it may also color your experience of teaching overall and make you think maybe this isn't something I want to do. Like I really blew it out there and you know they all they all saw me choke, so this isn't what I'm cut out for. If, on the other hand, you do, you, you choose a dance that you've done many times before, doesn't even have to be your own, and you do a practice run with maybe a friend who knows what to watch for, if you test it out on a class who doesn't know that you're testing it out on them, <laughs> and you have maybe that same friend observe what you said you were going to do in theory, like let's say you did the one-on-one with that one friend of yours, it's a lot different than teaching a full group. So if your friend says, okay, well, you want to look over your shoulder and make sure that they're following along. And uh, here's a part that I found a little tricky. So maybe give extra attention to that before anybody even has to ask. They can give you ideas of what you can do when it gets to that time. However, when they actually, when all the students do show up and uh, and you intend to do these things and you miss a couple, your friend is there to catch you. After you've done this with 
maybe several classes and multiple eyes watching this, <clears throat> you will know just about every angle as far as things that could potentially go wrong. You will already have addressed them and you'll already have contingency plans for whatever could arise. You'll say, oh yes, you know, a, a friend of mine told me that that might be um, a tricky part and what he suggested was this. And then you go through whatever this was. It might seem like overkill, but everyone in your class will appreciate how smoothly and efficiently the class went and how all of their needs were met and you didn't just have to shrug your shoulders and say, oh, I don't know, man, uh, that's a tough one. Let me know if you figure something out for it. That's not very helpful. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, you can be confident without being or seeming like an arrogant know-it-all. And you can certainly know what you're doing and you can make it clear with your, your firm body language and tone that you came prepared and you do know what you're doing and people can believe that you know the steps that you're telling them that they should do. If somebody else comes along and says, oh, I think, I don't know, like I tried this from the step sheet and I thought it was more like this. If they have the audacity to say in the middle of your lesson, um, that's a great time to work on patience. And <laughs> also, really give them benefit of the doubt. At, tell yourself, I could be wrong. Maybe I learned this incorrectly. Uh, let's both pull up the step sheet and show me what it is that you saw in the dance, in the step sheet that made you think that this was the step and then go through the step with them if you have time and then say, ah, here is where we have the difference is um, I believe that this is a touch so you don't shift the weight. And if, it's, if it had said step, then you would shift the weight and that's why I think we're each on different feet. And that's a really diplomatic way of putting it, by the way. Instead of saying, that's why you're on the wrong foot and that's why you got messed up. <laughs> Instead of saying that, you can say, that's why we have this difference. And I think that's how I got to, to this foot. And that's, that's why you're on this foot. Uh, we're just on, we're on different um, pages there because of uh, different ways that we interpreted the step sheet. Uh, which, which way feels better for you? Because, I mean, if you want to keep doing it that way, if you've, like, really imprinted on that, you know what, give this way a try, but ultimately it'll be up to you how you dance it. Very diplomatic. True, very true. Oh, and, uh, and did any names come to you for folks? I know for me, I've, um, I've been very impressed by how confident... Madison is and how prepared she seems during her lessons. Uh, and I think one of the tricks that she uses is ending her sentences with a downward tone. So instead of ending with an upward inflection that sounds like a question, she ends things like, all right, now here's what we're going to do next. As opposed to, all right, here's what we're gonna do next. Uh, we're gonna do this. And then we're going to do this. And then afterward, we're going to do this. And I think we'll all be good then, don't you think? That can seem like it's a suggestion. Whereas speaking with a downward inflection can seem like, I have thought about this. We are going to start with this. And then we're going to move on to this. At the end, it should look 
like this. And maybe you can vary it. Maybe go a little up sometimes and a little down sometimes. But at the end of it, ultimately, you want people to get the message that you did prepare. You are certain that this is what it is. And it's not really open for discussion or dispute because you know. They might think, but you know. Does anybody come to mind for you? Uh, there's a couple different people, obviously, because we've been to so many different events at this point. Um, and I'm sorry, hold on a sec. We're just we shifting a couple things. All right, go ahead. Um, because we've been to so many different events at this point and had so many different instructors at our disposal, which has been an absolute amazing treat. Uh, plus any of the lessons we've had in the past by just regular people, and I say regular people, like people who, you know, maybe haven't choreographed anything or they're, they're just there to instruct so that more people have fun on the dance floor or just some uh, person we've never met at, say, like a market somewhere. We've been able to really have different experiences and it's allowed me to look at a lot of different individuals and how they teach, such as, you know, Joe, who always seems to have fun and is very lighthearted and is very warm and welcoming when she's on the stage. She has that way of just setting people at ease. Uh, people like Rachel come to mind because... When she's on that stage, for whatever reason, with me anyways, I have this thing where I'm, like, hanging on every word she says, trying to, like, get the most out of what she's saying. And uh, just really trying to absorb what how she's coming across with different things. She's She's very, very professional up there. I absolutely love taking lessons from Fred. Mm. He's probably one of my favorite people to learn from at the moment because he has so much fun and he never seems to... I guess the best way to say is he never seems to not go over things enough and not go over things too much. Like, it's always, like, the perfect amount of repetitions for whatever he's teaching. Uh, whatever he's trying to explain, I understand it. And I don't know if that has anything to do with just how he prepares or how often he's taught it. Or if that's a very natural thing from him and he didn't have to learn any tricks about it. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to clarify that. But I really, really enjoy his lessons because it's a mixture of let's get it done and let's have a lot of fun doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's certainly one of those things. I really enjoyed taking a lesson from Jill, mm. uh, Run Me Like a River, in uh, Colorado. <clears throat> I had so much fun in that class. She was making the occasional jokes, but really taking the time to explain things. And I think that's that's the most common thing I've noticed with the instructors that I really enjoy their le their lessons from, is they have a really good balance of 
the sense of humor and the fun and the lighthearted with the we're here to learn. We're here to be studious as well. Um, they've really found a good mixture. Know a little about a lot. In addition to one area of expertise, you should also seek to know as much about as many subjects as possible. Intelligence is one of the key markers of a man who is able to affect the world around us. And the more conversations you can confidently wade into and add on to, the smarter and more well-liked you will seem to others. How do you gain a wide breadth of knowledge? Read, read, read. Read every chance you get. Also, I'd like to note that there are many more chunks to this article. There are at least nine separate headings in about the next 20 minutes. Well, worst case scenario, we can just finish this next week. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, know a little about a lot. Um, I like knowing as much as I can about as many different things as possible. I find it very beneficial to know a little bit about a lot. Obviously, the more you can know, the better. But as long as you have some knowledge on a array of topics that really gives you the ability to engage in a lot of different things, a lot of different um, conversations. I know that there's been some conversations I've had with people where I'm like, oh, I remember reading this, this, and this. Do you know more about that? And if they do, they're able to really get going. It opens up a great conversation and dialogue, and I get knowledge from it. And I'm always about learning more. Uh, another thing is not pretending you know more than you do. It's okay not to know everything. I, I know a lot of times uh, the one thing I've learned in retail is under promise over deliver. Mm -hmm. It's okay not to know something and just say, you know, I'm not actually sure how to answer that. Let me go find out the answer for you. And then go and do it. <laughs> Come back to them. Give them the answer. It's one of those things where you don't have to be like, oh, yeah, this and this and this and this. And then they find out that you actually were wrong. Mm -hmm. Then it doesn't paint you in a pretty picture. Cite your sources as well. Because if you just say, yeah, I think this is how you do a turning shuffle. And you don't tell them like, well, I read it on this one step sheet and I believe it was Rachel's. And if we would look it up right now, I think that's what it'll say. Like, th that's an authority figure right there. Like, that's legit. And for you to just say, I remember seeing it from Rachel's, that's huge if you can back it up. And if you say, oh, it's a, yeah, I think you do this, this and this, and that's a turning shuffle. Um, I don't know. I'm pretty sure that's just how it is. I'm pretty sure that's just how it is. Right. Where does that come from? Based on what? What did you see? Who did you watch? Where is it in black and white? I don't know. I'm just pretty sure that's how it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Also, learn a lot of different dances. When they say know a little about a lot, at least expose yourself to a lot of different... In, this, in the dance world, anyway. A lot of different kinds of dance. Because it, I remember at the beginning... I was like so many others when I thought line dancing was a certain way to certain kind of music. You wear certain things, and that was what line dancing was. And I think a lot of us are in our individual classes, wherever we are in the world, doing our best to expand people.
people's idea yes. of what it is. And even if you are now in the circuit and you're learning all these dances and whatever, and you think, oh, that's well, that's line dance. That's all of line dance. Look at look at how well we've embraced all of line dance. Uh huh. You heard of soul line dancing? Have you heard of Catalan style dancing that they do like in Italy and France and Germany? Because theirs is also line dancing, and they haven't heard of so many of us over here in the United States or even in countries where they do like Run Me Like a River or something. They're doing pure 100% country music with like rock backs and kicks and quick turns and rocking back and rocking back and like all these different steps that for them are normal. And that's line dance. And what we do, as inclusive as it is, isn't really necessarily always on that radar. Soul line dance... They don't even have step sheets from what I've seen, but theirs is legitimate and huge. They have cruises. They have big-name celebrities in their circle, and we haven't heard of them. But theirs is also line dance. So really consider how little you may know um, and, and just be comfortable with that when you know a little about a lot. Know that you've heard of this being a certain way or you've, you've seen it somewhere on Facebook being like this, uh, but also be willing to be wrong um, and know the limits of your knowledge. <clears throat> yes. I fully back the idea of learning multiple styles of dance. One, in your own, I guess you could say like you were quoting, uh, the circle. So in our circuit events, knowing a nightclub, knowing a waltz, knowing a Viennese waltz, you know, knowing the two-step, knowing, you know, just your regular standard eight count, knowing a rolling eight count, you know, like all these different things that you can learn. Samba, rumba, salsa. Yeah, to name a few more. <laughs> um, and really getting your feet wet in just a little bit because it will make learning other dances easier. It will make it more fluid. It will expand you as a dancer. And then also going into these other, I guess, quote unquote, branches or genres of soul and Catalan, you know, you're going to be able to just expand your knowledge as well as be open to, you know, the differences in all the different aspects that you can consider line dancing. Mm -hmm. Ah, this next one. Near and dear to my heart, I suppose. Uh, actually, you know what? I have noticed Simon has really been on top of this one lately, and he has shown us his progress with it. <clears throat> Become physically fit. Your body shape is one of, if not the, first thing people take in when they meet you. A fit, muscular physique sends a signal to the most primal parts of other people's brains about your strength and ability to dominate and protect. Fitness also signals to other people that you're disciplined and capable of enduring pain in pursuit of a goal. This is likely why men with an average to husky build make more money than both their skinny and obese peers. As reported by the Wall Street Journal, one study found that thin guys earned 8000 $437 less than average weight men, but they were consistently rewarded for getting heavier, a trend that tapered off only when their weight hit the obese level. In one study, 
the highest pay point on average was reached for guys who weighed a strapping 207 pounds. I don't know how I feel about that. Okay, no, I lie. I don't like that. You don't like... I don't like that. I don't really like that. Really rippling muscles. Well, to be fair, not really. But that's a different <laughs> story. No, um, I don't like that that has actually a study and it's been proven inequality. Yeah, it's weird. I like, don't like that at all. <laughs> there are some ways that the world works. And honestly, I mean, okay, some of this may just have to do with choreography and pure dance ability. But think about folks like... Darren, Fred, and Trevor. Solid guys, good dancers, of course, and good dancers. And they've got muscles. They look like they could lead a charge if they had to. And then there are others of us. Guillaume, um, Jose, myself, Philip, R- maybe not Roy. Roy actually is pretty, he, he's, he's efficient <laughs> in his build. Uh, but yeah, some of us, you know, we're on the slimmer side. And I, for me, there's the easy excuse of like, well, who the heck am I? But for some of them, like the, Guillaume moves like, like a feather in the wind, just so like beautifully graceful. And we saw his videos at, at World Dance Masters mm-hmm. just owning She Used to Be oh Mine. Oh, God. And, huh. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe he's just not at that place in his dance journey yet or, or something, but like he's not where some other folks are. And like I said, well, some of this might have to have to do with just how long have people been in the scene, how uh, how well received are their dances. Um, but I mean, one of the things that we've talked about with like leadership is that there are some people who seem like they could lead the Justice League of line dance if they had to go represent Earth on some other planet and go head to head with another team of line dancers. <laughs> I always saw Guyton as an easy Batman of line dance. Like he could lead anything with confidence and enough like just sheer girth to back it up. Like he could step forward and you'd be like, oh, I'd better pay attention. And Joe has that ability and Rachel has that ability. Then there are other folks who seem just like they're, they're people they're very good at what they do, but they're people. And you wouldn't necessarily see them front and center. They would be helping in some way. And I think just the amount of body mass you have can affect whether others see you in the front of the V formation or somewhere on the sides. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't see it as a physical thing. I see it as the confidence level. Could be. I see it as those who walk out there as though they belong here doing what they're doing are the ones that I see as the front runners, so to say, in the Justice League. Um, it's the, the ones that are either hesitant or feel have the, um, the fraud mm-hmm. <laughs> feeling. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the ones that I start to see more, more or less, in the the outskirts or the supporting roles. Ah, uh, but consider this. Let's say I mean I definitely will um, accept that 
if you have a confident, slender, slight build person, um, and four very burly linebackers who look like they don't know what they're doing, and they just want to follow somebody who does know what they're doing, then yes, they would absolutely follow that person. But now, imagine you have the slim, barely there, confident person, and the Superman-looking person, and they both have equal confidence... If, if you lined up, if you took a whole bunch of dancers and said, okay, which of these people is the instructor? You don't know either of them. Which of them seems like the instructor? Oh, see, that's different because mm. I wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, if they both have the same kind of confidence, it wouldn't matter to me. I'm like, I don't know, that guy over there? Point to the dude sitting down for all I know. But if I know them, that's when my opinion becomes biased. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I don't... I guess I'm very fortunate at the idea that I really don't judge um, the idea of a qualified instructor based off of just appearance. Now, yes, appearances help. I'm not going to deny that, you know, if someone came in looking like they, you know, just fell off of the taco truck and, you know, they have sweatpants on and, you know, like their hair is all every which direction and they have paint stains all over their shirt from like, you know, repainting a room. And then you have someone who comes in in, you know, just nice, clean clothing, you know, like clean shaven or maybe not even clean shaven, but like trimmed at least. Mm-hmm. Um there is going to be a perceived difference. Mm. Someone who has that cleaner look, that sharper look, is going to be res- uh, responded to better than the person who looks like they just got, you know, they walked in from, you know, you know, doing 12 hours of housework or whatever. Which brings me to our next point. Dress for power. Clothing is one of our strongest power cues. When we see a man in a military uniform with lots of ribbons on his chest and stars on his shoulders, we automatically think, authority. But you don't have to don dress blues to garner this instantaneous respect from others. Studies have demonstrated again and again that simply wearing high-status clothing is enough to influence people. For example, in the Charisma Myth, Caban discusses one experiment that showed that people tended to follow a jaywalker sooner and more frequently if he was wearing a well-tailored suit than if he was wearing more schlumpy-looking clothing. Besides making others perceive you as more powerful, dressing well can actually make you feel more powerful and confident as well. By feeling more powerful, you act more powerfully, which makes others see you as more powerful. <laughs> the virtuous charismatic cycle for the win. Antonio will be going in-depth about the science and psychology of clothing's effect on power and confidence in a later post, but you can start taking steps today to dress better. You don't have to buy designer double-breasted pinstripe suits to look more powerful. Just make some small style upgrades that show you have it together. Instead of a t-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops, don a nice button-down shirt, a pair of khakis, and some leather dress boots. Slip on a sport coat or blazer to broaden and heighten your shoulders and create a more masculine silhouette. Another simple and inexpensive way to improve your appearance is to take your clothing to a tailor or seamstress to have it adjusted. You'll be amazed how much better and powerful you'll look with a dress shirt that isn't all baggy and poofy, or a suit that properly accents your shoulders. Finally, you may be thinking, but someone like Mark Zuckerberg wears hoodies and sandals and he's super powerful. 
True, but his success is the exception rather than the rule, in that it was born in a dorm room rather than through having to impress and make connections with other people. A better example would be Steve Jobs. Today, we think of him as the quintessential iconoclast, a persona symbolized by his uniform of jeans and a black turtleneck. But before Steve Jobs became the Apple wonder worker of the late 90s, he was still trying to build his success and convert people to his products and ideas. He dressed in pinstripe suits and even a bow tie. Once you attain the pinnacle of power, you may be able to wear whatever you want. But while you're still trying to gain power, dress like you've already got it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, when you think about like the different styles that people have, mm-hmm. for the most part, it's the very clean-looking clothing, like they just bought it kind of situation. Uh, you don't see it as in... Like, you know, they've worn this shirt a billion times, even though they may have. Uh, they tend, like, I know uh, Rachel and Joe very, wear very pretty flowy outfits. Um, Guyton has his iconic, you know, uh, armband and his sunglasses and beanie. But he also has, you know, the nice jeans that... They look clean. They're not torn every which direction as if, you know, like he's been out, you know, fishing for four months. It's important um, to smell good as well, speaking of fishing. <laughs> yes, true. Uh, and so you have like, and you, then you have like Roy with his vests or his um, his hats and stuff like that. Like you have people who have very distinct styles, but all of them are very clean, uh, very crisp looking styles that allow them to be perceived in a professional way. Mm. All right. The next several points that we will get back to in a future episode are be the big gorilla. Reminds me of Guyton. Assume power poses. Take control of your environment. Speak less and slowly. Power. Boost your poise. Finding your inner gorilla. And then a little wrap-up paragraph at the end. Power. (laughs) We will have time for all of those in a future episode, I'm sure. Maybe even one that we can record on the way to some dancing place or another. Maybe. Um, I kind of like that we have this two-parter thing going on. Leave people in suspense. Leave them wanting more. Hopefully, in theory. Yes. Um... Okay, so so far we've talked about the presence and mm-hmm. how it's important to listen and have eye contact mm-hmm. and give time before you respond. Really engage in the responding by nodding and asking clarifying questions. Giving people your attention by not having your phone out or playing on your phone. Uh, we've also talked about being confident, mm-hmm. and this is in the power portion, mm-hmm. as well as what else have we talked about? Well, my mind, when you just said confident, went to Amy, <laughs> and she has a dance, confident, but also she has a really cute part of clap, 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 where in the lyrics they say, I know you're strong, I know you're tough, and she does biceps. <laughs> and on Amy, that's just the cutest thing. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's a, a part that uh, we'll get to in in the later part of this article about power poses and standing up tall and straight. That looks very good up on stage, on camera, anywhere where you need to be a professional in the dance world. I notice in a lot of my old videos, I would totally get into the dances, but I would kind of compress myself a little bit. Almost like that first feeling I had when I started dancing of like, I don't... I don't know country music. I'm not really like a dancer. Like these people are dancers. I'll just do this and enjoy it in my little corner. Out in the middle of the floor. My little corner. Like you feel like you need to hide. And then even as you get more and more adept or deeper into these, um, these different kinds of dances, different numbers of counts and walls and everything, you still, there's this part of you that you don't even recognize until you see it from a third party perspective like a a video that's like wow he's still hiding like parts of his body still don't feel like they can stretch out yet and I'm getting a lot better about that now but I think it's articles like this where they tell you flat out just stand up straight look people in the eye walk like you mean it things like that like you need to be told and then you need to practice a little bit and then you can carry that around wherever you go whatever you're doing and if you're most confident in the dance environment, start there, practice it there. You know we're all going to support you in it because that's how the dance environment is. And then go out into the rest of the world and try it out at like a supermarket. True. Um, Or the bank if you're asking for a loan. Very much so. Mm -hmm. That, That is something I've noticed like over the year or so that I've been really focusing on dance. When I would first get out on the dance floor, I would hide in that little corner mm. and I would try and dance as small as possible, uh, hoping that people don't see me and don't look at me and don't follow me. And you're know, like, just let me just enjoy this little, this, this little thing over here. And as time has progressed, I have enjoyed becoming more of a free spirit when I step out onto that dance floor like this is my home this is where I belong and that although we've said it a hundred thousand times we'll say it a hundred thousand times more is because our dance family our dance environment have so many amazingly wonderful and welcoming people that just get so excited to be at these events and being able to share that with them is just, it's priceless and it's such an amazing feeling. And because of all of that, we've been able to branch out more. Hmm. One closing thought I have about just this topic at all of charisma and its elements of uh, presence, power and warmth is if a person is thinking, well, you know, I don't, I don't need this uh, for me for lion dancing. Cause like, I just do it for me, et cetera, whatever. Um, This isn't necessarily just for you. It's for the people that you affect. And it's a gift in a way. Like I've heard that, I don't know exactly how it was phrased, but like, um, like one of the best gifts you can give to other people is becoming the best version of yourself because then you have so much more to offer if there are people around you in need and they they want somebody that they can learn from and trust and feel comfortable around and know that somebody has their back. Like if I were ever walking down a street in San Francisco 
leaving uh, a line dance thing, or if we were on the moon and it was us against some other aggressive line dance alien team, I trust that Guyton would have our back. Like he could, he could step up and be the person to make the difficult statements and choices. And that's something he's, it seems like he has chosen for himself to do. Nobody forced him to do it. He's, he seems to have just said, like, Rachel, my God, with all her floor splits, she decides to do that. And it's her feeling of, like, duty or responsibility to the rest of us that makes her become better so that she can give even more of herself to the rest of us. So when you make yourself, quote, better or more charismatic, it's not just about ego or having people like you more so that you can bask in it. Uh, as much as it's intended to make you more valuable for the people around you so you can offer more to them and make their lives better. Mm-hmm. That's why we do it. That's why this article is part of today's episode of Line Dance Podcast on Move Radio with Christopher Gonzalez and Megan Marcelia. Thank you once again for tuning in. Until next time, we will... See you, you on, on the, the dance, dance floor. floor. Hello and welcome once again to Lion Dance Podcast on Move Radio with Christopher Gonzalez and Megan Barcelia. We are coming to you live from sunny Ronert Park, California today, continuing our conversation from last week on the three elements of charisma. Last week we covered in full one of the elements, which was presence. And then we started power. And power has uh, a few headings that we already talked about. How to increase your charismatic power. We've got boost your confidence, know a little about a lot, become physically fit and dress for power. Moving on, here is the next of many more tips regarding how to be charismatic through power. Be the big gorilla. After clothing, body language is the second biggest influence on other people's perception of your power. One nonverbal cue that indicates power is the amount of space an individual uses. As you probably intuited, powerful people take up more space than others. They act, as Caban describes, like big gorillas. According to organizational behavioral professor Deborah Grunfeld, Powerful people sit sideways on chairs, drape their arms over the back, or appropriate two chairs by placing an arm across the back of an adjacent chair. They put their feet on the desk. They sit on the desk. To increase the level of power people perceive you to have, look for ways to subtly increase the amount of space you take up. Drape an arm over the back of a chair like Don Draper. Or when a coworker comes into your office to chat, instead of sitting behind your desk, casually sit on top of it. Another tip Caban suggests to help you harness your inner big gorilla is to practice getting people to move aside for you in a crowded environment using only your body language. Imagine you're actually a big gorilla. Inflate your chest and stand up straight. Start walking and see if people will move out of your way as you saunter in this powerful stance. Doing this might seem a bit uncomfortable and weird, but it's a great exercise to help you see the efficacy of body language. If you bump into someone, treat it as an opportunity to convey warmth and kindness by apologizing and making the other person feel comfortable. 
I find that interesting because I have almost always sat in chairs like sideways and like leaned back and stuff like that. And I was always told it was just sloppy <laughs> and disrespectful. Um, and I love, you know, like lean, I used to sit, um, at the edge of my desk, um, just kind of like leaning up against it, almost sitting, uh, while I was talking with friends before class started kind of thing. So it's like, it's interesting that that's recommended for elements of power when it was just comfortable for me. Um, and I always felt bad doing it because, I, again, like I said, I was always told that it was sloppy. So who knew? Hmm. You know, uh, one person that came to mind immediately for me is Guyton. He looks like somebody who doesn't hide himself. If he's sitting, he wants to be comfortable. He doesn't He doesn't look like uh, he's going to shrink into a little ball just so like some more furniture can fit around him or something like he's going to make use of the space that he has and when he does sit he looks very settled rooted also on the dance floor i remember seeing a video of rachel doing poetry in motion last year at windy city and she covers some ground she really stretches to the full length of her legs and arms and there's even one point when she's uh, she's doing a turn and as she's coming out of it, she gets really close to another person and you see the other person sort of shrink back like she's afraid she's going to get trampled and Rachel just sort of keeps going. <laughs> and uh, you can really see her like get, just kind of getting into that zone of you know letting the dance flow through her and not worrying um, too much about like maintaining an artificially small bubble when she's I mean you can tell she's pretty confident people are aware that she's there and they'll make space you know around her also she just in general is um a pretty conscientious person so if she had to do something smaller than normal she could do it you know tight and controlled um for some of these dances though she really it, it is it, it's like seeing um a swan fully extend its wings and just like seeing the fullness of their their dance being on the floor mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I was going to say um, I know with uh, the few times I've been fortunate enough to dance next to someone like Rachel uh, part of that experience that I've enjoyed is making more space so that I can see what they do and really let them um, enjoy that moment where they're just totally lost in the dance because it's so pure and so genuinely um, engaging for me that I like. I really enjoy when I'm able to see that. So, you know, now that I think about it, the DJ booth is kind of like this too. Uh, when JP and Louie are behind the desk, they usually have it in sort of like an L configuration. And each of them is able to pop a laptop up on one leg of the L um, in case they have to go back and forth. And they look like they've got plenty of room for all their stuff, drinks, uh, request lists, random papers, equipment for wireless mics. And when they kick back and um, and stretch out, they... Um, they look very comfortable 
uh, for the duration of the evening. So that's uh, maybe that's one of the things that lends to their their sense of uh, or, or the sense that there is an authority behind that booth. Like when people see how comfortable they are and how rooted they are, then they they look at that and they think, okay, that's where we can go to talk to some like decision makers and people who are governing the flow of the night. Yeah, very true. Up next, and this is directly relevant to what we just said, assume power poses. Related to being the big gorilla is using power poses. These are body stances that have been proven to effectively convey power. The most familiar power pose is arms akimbo, with the hands resting on the waist. Superheroes are fond of this power pose. Another power pose is leaning back in your chair with your hands behind your head, like this picture of a guy doing like this. (laughs) If you're at a meeting and you'd like to convey power to those in the room, simply stand up, lean forward, and rest your hands on the table in front of you. Instant authorita. It's spelled authorita, T-A-H. Exclamation point. A final power pose, lifting your arms straight up in the air like you've just thrown the game-winning touchdown pass. I'm not sure when you could incorporate this pose in your daily life without looking weird, though. What's interesting about all these different poses is that not only do they make others perceive you as more powerful, but they also make you feel more powerful and manly. Studies have shown that by simply standing in a power pose for two minutes, testosterone levels increase, while cortisol levels decrease, making you feel more confident and less stressed. When you feel more confident, you act more powerful. Another charismatic virtuous circle. They're everywhere! This TED Talk by Harvard professor Amy Cuddy does a great job explaining the efficacy of power poses. Click. I don't know, like some of those quote-unquote power poses um, don't necessarily convey power to me in a natural organic kind of way it's it definitely seems like a you're trying too hard kind of way um one of the things that i've noticed is a lot of times in speaking with those that you know we have we have a s- acknowledged as in a powerful position such as someone like joe or rachel or guyton or any, even Fred, a lot of them don't cross their arms. They're very open body language. Um, and I think some of that has to do with like a welcoming sense. But because they don't cross their arms, they also don't like shrink themselves. They keep, give themselves that room, that space around them that allows them to also assume that, I guess, quote unquote, power pose in a very natural and organic way for them that is very respectful, which is nice. Because, like, some of these seem very intrusive to me, personally. I don't remember whether I saw this as it related to mat wrestling, like um, like Olympic-style wrestling, mm-hmm. or whether it was pro wrestling. But I remember reading it about the same time, because I actually was in wrestling in high school for a little bit, and that was at the same time I was watching pro wrestling. Uh, it said not when, when you're tired, not to rest your hands on your knees and like lean over and huff and puff, 
Like if you need to huff and puff, that's fine, but do it with your hands on your waist. Because if you do it with your hands on your knees, you look weak and gassed and winded. And if you're in a competitive environment, then somebody will look at that and say, oh, wow, I got this guy beat already. It'll give them more confidence and then they finish you off. Uh, and if it's in an entertainment sense, like pro wrestling, then it just makes for a better show for the people at home. Because if the person who is uh, fighting or whatever is doing their match is leaning over with their hands on their knees, showing their bald spot to everyone, then you know you don't get to see their merchandise or whatever it is that they have on their upper body. If they're standing up with their arms on their waist, they look like they're strong and bigger than life and superhuman, and you can see their facial features and all the things that people tuned in to see, not just this, the top of somebody's head while they're tired mm-hmm. and wheezing. Also, the Simon. The Simon. The Simon, as Madison uh, referred to it in... Um, Shake That. Shake That, yes. Um uh, you can see Simon Ward put this into many of his dances. Uh, he will reach overhead, like from top going out to the sides or from sides going up to the top. Uh, I know he does this in Yeehaw and in Larger Than Life. Uh, and then Madison does it in Shake That. And she kind of does a version of this in Power Mix right before she goes into another power pose, which is like biceps. Uh, Amy Glass does this also with biceps in Clap, Clap, Clap. And I believe there was another one that I saw recently. Yes, uh, Shay McCaff, or McCafferty, McCaff, I don't know. Shay, Shay does it uh, in up in here during her tag where she does the, ah, crazy. Uh, she does the overhead thing. There are a few different dances out there that make use of the power pose very often in a tag or in some special part B. Uh, it happens a lot even in like Fragile and uh, End of Sound of Silence. Uh, and I think it does give people that extra sense of power. You can only do so much with your feet and your lower body. And Joe in her technique workshops does say like, you know, lead with the body. Uh, but then for the extension beyond that, when she says about, you know, using the space around you, that's where the arms can really come into play and you can feel more muscle groups engaging. Yeah, no, and it's, and that, for me, because uh, it is the choreography, it definitely feels more natural than, say, you know, if I was s- standing talking to, say, like, Louis or JP, I wouldn't put my hands on the desk and lean towards them. I mean, that's very invasive, very in a um, almost aggressive kind of way. Whereas um, there are ways to have a powerful stance very assertive without being you know aggressive mm-hmm. next up here take control of your environment we feel most self-assured at ease and powerful when we're familiar with our surroundings familiarity gives us a sense of control which makes us feel confident This is why organizations sometimes fight over the location of negotiations before they even start negotiating. Each side wants that home field advantage. 
But how can you be familiar with a room if it's your first time entering it? Author and magician Steve Cohen suggests doing small things to instantly take control of your surroundings. For example, when you sit down at a table in a restaurant, rearrange things on the table. Move a salt shaker or your water glass. It sounds silly, but by doing this, you tell your subconscious that you have control, even if it's nominal, of your surroundings, which in turn makes you more confident and magnetic. Look for small but polite ways in which you can take control of your surroundings in your everyday activities. You might be amazed by the results. I've done the restaurant thing a couple times, but I think for me it's more or less I'm afraid to knock over my water glass. <laughs> no, but um, there there's certainly ways that you can you can do that with your environment. Um, I was thinking about how uh, starting in Vegas or starting Vegas this year is when these events will be my second time attending events. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what the difference is like knowing that I've been in this ballroom before, um, as opposed to just, oh, I was in the ballroom yesterday. That's something to consider too, when you're going to these events that are more than a day is, you know, after the first day, the second day, you know, you've been there before. So it's okay to be a little bit more comfortable. Um, but would it oh excuse me a sec mm, sorry about that but you know like certain things that you can do is uh picking that spot that you feel comfortable coming back to each time I know we've mentioned it in other other podcasts where we like to sit near the DJ but that doesn't stop us from traveling around the room we just always come back to that one spot that's our familiar spot so like that gives us that chance to uh, readjust, reevaluate, re-energize, because that's kind of like our home base, and then we can go and branch out again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned home base. That's exactly what I was thinking. One of the little ways that we are able to uh, get acquainted with a new ballroom is just drop off our stuff, put things like bags under the chair. Uh, maybe if I have an extra layer that's just too warm uh, that I know I'm not going to be wearing the rest of the night, I'll drape my shirt over the back of the chair where I'm sitting. And that feels like a place we can come back to, no matter where else we wander off to, no matter who else we visit with. If we go up to the room, if we go out to the gift shop, we know that our stuff, our stuff is tethered there. And when we come back, it'll still be there. Mm -hmm. And that makes us feel more rooted, just like the DJ um, L shape, we were just saying, gives them that sense of rootedness like their their little perch or nest, uh, we are able to have that on a smaller scale. Even better when there's a table. I love when events have tables that you can sit at because yeah. that feels even more like a home base. Mm-hmm. And you can customize that. You make a little like a half circle of your of your things. Just kind of carve out a little area where you can you know if there's food you can put your plate down in your little area. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it makes you feel that much more at home. Speak less and slowly. Powerful people don't just take up space physically. They also take up space in conversation. 
Paradoxically, this doesn't mean you should be hogging the speaking time. Powerful people actually tend to speak less than low-status individuals. By making their words scarce, powerful people increase the value of their communication. When they do speak, people listen. Harness your inner Spartan by being a bit less chatty and a bit more laconic with your speech. Powerful people also take up space in the conversation with silence. Unlike most folks, powerful people aren't afraid of awkward silence. In fact, they relish it. They understand that people will nervously try to fill the silent gaps. It's usually during these bouts of anxious chatter that the other man gives up some strategic advantage or useful information. This is why interrogators, job interviewers, and negotiators often resort to the silent treatment to suss out the other person's vulnerabilities. Another way to take up space in the conversation is to speak slowly. Speaking fast conveys nervousness and anxiety. Speaking slowly conveys the intelligence, thoughtfulness, and calmness that powerful people embody. Legendary actor Michael Caine summed it up nicely when he said, The basic rule of human nature is that powerful people speak slowly and subservient people quickly, because if they don't speak fast, nobody will listen to them. You'd be surprised how fast you talk. Summon your inner Sam Elliott and make an effort to slow it down. It may seem like you're speaking way too slowly at first. But trust me, you'll sound completely normal and even a bit regal. There were ellipses between many of those words, by the way, for anybody listening at home. It really was uh, intended to be that slow. I like that you had to clarify. Mm-hmm. Um, Otherwise, that would be way too slow. <laughs> um, it is true that uh, when I get nervous, I ramble and I fill in those spaces. So when I'm really comfortable and at ease, I can have a very natural flowing conversation with people. Um, I have noticed how a lot of people tend to listen more than they speak. So when they speak, they actually have something of value to say. So that's something to consider. Um, I know we had mentioned uh, talking and... I think it was for the first portion of this uh, segment uh, that it's okay to have silences in between, collect your thoughts. It's okay to wait before you answer someone. And having that, those pauses here and there helps you not only collect your thoughts and actually say something worth saying, but also gives the other person a chance to follow along with you as well. Um, as for the speaking less, I don't know. Maybe I just ramble too much. I know that if an instructor were teaching with nonstop talking, I'd probably feel a little nervous, like they're nervous and they don't know what they're doing, so they're going to try to move really quickly and hope nobody has any questions. Uh, if they're going more slowly, they have time to actually check in. It's sort of like that trick that teachers use 
when they know that the class is not fully there and present, so they'll just start talking more quietly, and they'll say the exact same thing that they were saying before. We'll bring it down to this level, so the people in the front row can hear them, but everybody else has to get really quiet, so they can hear if there's a quiz coming up, or if people are supposed to take out their books and start reading something, and then eventually the entire class is quiet. It's very sneaky. <laughs> so if an instructor does that uh, at a dance event, you know, oh, maybe we were getting a little rambunctious. We should tune in and see if this is going to be important, if this is going to be the next few counts. And then they can shush each other. The instructor does not have to do it for them, and they can all move on together. Also, if, if it seems like they're just breezing through and not checking in with people, then you wonder if they even want to be there or if they'd rather be taking a nap. So they just want to get it over with and leave. If they're stopping and looking around and being quiet for a moment while they wait to see everyone get through the eight count, and then they say, all right, now here's what I saw, then you know they're actually paying attention. They are present and engaged with the entire class. And they're not just paying you a bunch of lip service and saying, wow, that was great, you know, hooray, mm -hmm. without knowing if anybody's actually doing great, hooray. Having those spaces uh, gives them information just as they are giving you information when they teach you whatever the next eight counts happen to be. Yeah. yeah. Also, I noticed that by not speaking overly quickly, you don't have to correct yourself. It's easier to just say something correctly the first time and learn something correctly the first time than to bluster through it thinking you know what you're talking about, hoping that it's going to all turn out okay, and then have to say, whoops, just kidding, I got ahead of myself, uh, I, I shouldn't have syncopated that part, those are whole counts, all right, now relearn everything you just did, and we're going to take twice the amount of time that we would have if we had just done this properly the first way. True. Yeah. yeah. Spe speaking, it's like measure twice, cut once. Speaking slowly lets you think about what you're going to do and then say that, and then actually follow through, which then gives you more credibility and authority as an instructor. People want to take your classes because they can trust you. Exactly. Boost your poise. Powerful people are composed people. They have poise, or a certain grace and stillness about them. They don't excessively nod, a sign of submissiveness. They don't fidget, a sign of nervousness. And they don't rely on verbal fillers like um and uh and so and but and yeah. In your next encounter with someone, act natural, but focus on being as still as possible. Not every now and then, to indicate you're listening. But don't turn into a bobblehead. Keep your hands still and don't tap your feet. Read our article on how to eliminate ums and uhs. I laugh at your uh, added wordage. I still like you. <laughs> Liar. No. Um, <laughs> it's true. I'm very guilty of the ums and the uhs and the yeah and the buts and the so's. It, go ahead. I do the same with... I, I try to cut down on it. Um, as I just say, uh... The word like, I think it's a California thing, and it just like spread, I just said like, <laughs> it's spread to the rest of the world. 
it happens, and when you start to notice it, it drives you crazy. Uh huh. I remember in high school, somebody giving a presentation, and in one sentence, she used fourteen likes. Ouch. Yeah. I don't think I'm that bad. <laughs> it's all learning. It's all learning. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed is certainly now that we've done so many podcasts and I've been mic'd and I've been, you know, having a mic right there that I have to speak into, I am conscious about dead air because, you know, people are listening and I know for me, I enjoy when people continue their train of thoughts, but at the same time, I'm very aware of how many times I say, uh, yeah, so, but, um, yeah. And so once you start noticing that kind of thing, it does get very frustrating because you, you tell yourself it's okay to have just a moment to think and to breathe. It's all right. They'll still keep listening you can't help but still fill in some of that space when you're trying to collect your thought. I don't know if it's something that just is ingrained in in us as kids that we're so afraid that if we don't give them a signal that we're not done yet, we're going to get interrupted. Uh, and if you're, you know, like me from a very loud family that likes to talk over each other a lot... You don't want to be talked over. You don't want to be interrupted. You want that able to finish your your sentence. And yet you're just as guilty of doing the same thing to others. So it's certainly one of those things that's a little bit tricky when you're trying to figure out your train of thought. And I totally uh, lost, lost it. Um... Boost your poise. I don't know. It's, it's hard to go into that for me. Do you have anything on that? that you? I mean, I know there are definitely some poised people we've seen in the line dance community. Like, I'm going to say her name for the 50th, maybe 51st time in the last three weeks. Joe! <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what a lot of this poise comes from for people is experience and preparation. When you are alternating between thinking and doing, you have to stop doing for a moment and think what comes next. What are the next few steps? We've seen this at bars where instructors do not seem prepared. They will stop and they'll go over it in their head. They'll do the last few counts. Say, okay, so here's where we are. So they had to not do and then think and then come back to doing. That's when you get dead air. When a person is so well prepared, they know exactly what they're going to do next because maybe it's a classic that they've taught very, very many times and it's practically muscle memory to teach the next part. Like I'm sure you are with KS for Kicks at this point. Mm -hmm. You don't have to think, oh, what's, how, where's my weight? Um, well, okay, everybody just hang out for a second. I'm going to go through this real quick. And, uh, yeah, we're on the left. Okay, so we're on the left, and then we're going to um, think about it like um, all of that is filler. If you know what you're going to say, you just say it. It just comes out of you. You don't even have to think about it. You've prepared. 
that also makes people look way more professional. Uh, whether or not they have decades of age to them, they can still look like they have decades of experience by preparing like one of those older folks might, I think, immediately of Madison Glover. She is such a pro with her lessons. And you can tell that she's done preparation. She's tested out these lessons on other people before. And by the time she shows up for your lesson, it seems like she's done this 30 times prior, even if it's a brand new dance. Because she takes that extra time to polish it before you ever see it. Some people can get away because of who they are or whatever their personality is or how they package it with winging it and sometimes it'll be alright and everyone will get through it and it'll be just fine. But if you're not as good at winging it and you get flustered and you forget a thing and then you're mad at yourself or you blame somebody else for distracting you or whatever it is that makes you seem like you didn't prepare and you don't handle it professionally, like that, that is when I, I would say just go with the tried and true method of over-preparing so that by the time it is you know, showtime, you feel like it's a breeze and as they say uh, you fight the way you train or the more you sweat in training the less you'll bleed in battle both of those would apply when people are only seeing like the tip of the iceberg they are seeing a small percentage of all of the work that goes into it if you put in way more than you think you need to way more preparation and way more reps and test runs, then the, ti the tiny little tip of the iceberg they see will be great. And if you do the bare minimum, then the tiny bit they see is going to not look so good or clean. They will see what looks like 10% of a person's full efforts. Yeah, I've had, I've had one or two... Uh last minute lessons that I wasn't necessarily prepared to teach and it took me a moment to find that groove for whatever reason other than ones that like for instance K is for kicks I've done so many times at this point that if someone was to ask me right now to teach it to them it would be that professional lesson that you know okay start by putting your heel out bring it back in and step on it like and it's because I've said it so many times in this repetition, it's a very natural, organic way of me teaching it, as opposed to, for instance, this morning with I'm free, it was, I've taught the dance a couple times before, so I'm familiar with teaching it, but I wasn't fully ready for like, okay, this is where I'm going to stop them, this is where I'm going to show them the next move, this is where I'm going to explain this move, because I've only done it a couple times at this point. Um, so it definitely, I myself felt the difference as the instructor of what being prepared for a lesson feels like versus being not prepared for a lesson. And I know that although they, you know, both circumstances, they got the dance, they enjoyed the dance because, you know, I mean, they're great dances, but 
I know that they get more out of the lessons when I'm prepared versus when I'm not prepared. And it just makes me have a better sense of pride and confidence up there. And I know when I'm prepared that if something does go wrong, I get to laugh it off at a whole lot easier than if I wasn't prepared because my nerves are already going crazy. Um, like, for instance, if I accidentally said, you know, right instead of left or left instead of right or something like that, I get to laugh. Or the one time I decided to take out just eight counts of a dance, you know, that I'd taught before, I got to laugh and, you know, the whole class laughed. And I was like, okay, let's try that again, this time for me, so I can get it right. You know, and it's it's a nice, fun way of doing it. But because my nerves weren't shot to begin with because I, I felt prepared to teach the lesson, I got to enjoy that mistake as opposed to really, really dwell on it. Mm-hmm. So There's another saying, under promise, over deliver. And by being prepared, you have the opportunity to then give little bonus things, little bonus tips like styling, um, head starts um, for people can make them feel bored during the lesson if they already learned it prior. So injecting those little bonus tips and, and styling can give the head start people uh, something to explore while everyone else is just learning the basic steps. Yeah, under under promise over deliver and you won't have to feel like you're catching up with yourself. You won't feel like you're always chasing your own tail trying to like let's say if you're after the fact remembering because you weren't prepared. Oh, here's this bonus thing you can add in. Well, that's great, but they already did the full speed demo through. They're ready to move on to the next thing and now you tell them this by by knowing that ahead of time and putting it in its proper place during the lesson you won't feel like you're in some rush to go back in time a few seconds. Okie dokie, last paragraph. Finding your inner gorilla. I imagine that there's a good number of you who are thinking, I don't know about this. It makes me feel a little uncomfortable. I enjoyed the article on presence more. I bet you did. Paying attention to people is nice. (laughs) And we're all conditioned and raised to be nice to others. We're not taught how to be assertive and act powerful. In fact, we're often made to apologize and feel bad for wanting to. Just remember that being powerful doesn't mean being a jerk. You'll also need to cultivate your presence and warmth in order to be truly magnetic. But just being nice is not the same thing as being charismatic. You might be likable, but not fascinating, not magnetic, not someone people are drawn to as soon as you walk into the room. So work on developing your power, even if it doesn't come naturally to you at first. With time and practice, I promise it will. And this article was part two in a three-part series, The Three Elements of Charisma, Power by Brett and Kate McKay. Speaking of lessons that you've taught recently, Megan, I think this is a great time to take a musical break and play a song that isn't actually, as far as I know, to be found on Spotify, but which we happen to have here in the studio. (laughs) 
This is uh, the the track "I Got a Woman" ah. by Rude Dog, featuring Ray Charles, and the dance is "I Got a Woman" by Michael. I want to say it's Desiree, or it looks like Desire with an accent over the e. Nieto, and you taught this last night. Last night at Sonoma State Line Dance Club. I did. It was a lot of fun to teach it, too. I really enjoyed it. Okie dokie. After that, we'll be coming back with more charisma tips. And the third part of this three-part series will be on warmth. Right now, here is I Got a Woman. 